Well, good evening to each one of you. You're not getting a sermon tonight. I thought about what to share, and a story came to my mind, so I'm going to tell a story tonight. I didn't actually know the children were going to be here, but that works just as good. I enjoy talking to children more than I enjoy talking to adults. They are more agreeable on the whole than older people are, easier to get along with in a lot of respects. I have a story tonight, and this story does have a lesson. It actually has four lessons. Two of them, I think, are, at least to me, um, they're not hard to see. The other two you might have to dig a little bit deeper for. But these four lessons, um, they do apply in life, and they do apply in school, too. I'm going to be look at, looking at them more in relationship to the way you raise your children and the way you teach your children to think about some things. When I was a little boy, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and my grandparents owned some farms, and I enjoyed going in the summertime to stay on one of their farms with them. We did not live on a farm. Um, we lived well, we did live on one of the farms part of my growing up years, but we did not live on a farm most of my growing up years. And I really just kind of treasured when summer came and school was out because I was allowed to go and stay at my grandparents. And the one particular farm that I enjoyed going to was in Butler County, Pennsylvania. It was uh, really not much of a farm by that time. They actually did not farm the ground anymore. They uh, had some beef cattle, and that was about it. But I enjoyed going there. My grandparents lived on one side of the road. There was a little valley, and the road came down through about the middle of that little valley, and the farm was on both sides of the road. And as you came down the little road into the valley, kind of like this aisle right here, um, my grandparents lived on left-hand side, and across the road, just a little bit further down, perhaps another 70 yards or so, was the great big um, old farmhouse where my great-grandmother lived. I would go and I would stay with my grandparents, and every day, one of the things that I would do in the summertime is I would go see my great-grandma. Wasn't much traffic on the road, um, you could probably go lay on the road half the day and nobody would run you over. So I could just even as a little boy, and I was little, I was probably about yay big at this time, I would go across the road and um, up the bank and knock on her door. She would come to the door. She was old. I don't remember how old she would have been at that time, but she was old. And knock on the door and she would come and she did not get a lot of visitors, but she was always glad to see me. She was very kind of particular with things. We would go in her house, and I remember her couches had plastic on them, like clear plastic, so that little boys would not get the couches dirty. And she would set me on the one couch, and then she would sit across from me in a gooseneck rocker, and we would visit. And after a while, she would go get the candy bowl, 
And she only ever had one kind of candy in all the years that I knew her. They were little pink peppermint things that you would chew on. And I don't know what they're called, but I would call them grandma candies. I would get grandma candies. And then generally, um, if my grandpa was around, he would tell me I should go down to the spring house to play for a while. And he would go downstairs to the basement and get one of my grandma's canning jars so I could catch um, crawdads or crayfish in them down in the spring house. She would usually grumble something about me using her canning jars, but he would insist, so I would go down there. And that was another thing I really enjoyed about going to my grandmother's house. The spring house was down back across the road. You had to go underneath the fence and down through the pasture field, and then there was a little, um, a little building there. And I don't know, do any of you have a spring house where you live? They don't have so many spring houses in Virginia as we had in Pennsylvania, but this little spring house was where the water for the house came from. And it was a little building, and it was kind of buried into the ground. You had to go around the back side. There was a little stone wall, and then there was a door. And the door was always um, kind of a source of trepidation for me. That means it's something to be afraid of. It was a big, thick door, and a snake lived on top of that door. Almost every time you would go to the spring house, he would be on top of that door. It was a big, thick, wooden door, about like this, and I guess it was a nice place for him to lay. You would very carefully and quietly go up to the door, and you would lift the latch off, and then you would back up as far as you could and still touch the door and jerk it open, and run. And usually he was there and he would fall down and you would scream and go running away. And when you came back about 10 minutes later, he was nowhere to be found. I don't know where he went, but he went away. And then you would just kind of creep inside the spring house and look around in the rafters. And I don't ever remember seeing him after I jerked the door open. So he must have had a nice place to go and hide. But you go in the spring house, and there's a little floor there, like a cement floor. And then on the other side, there was um, a big round tile that was stuck down in the ground, and that is where the water came up from. And it was about this big around. And you always went over and looked down in it, because there was always something in it. Do you know what was in it? What do you think might have been in it? It was filled to the brim with water, and actually the top of it was about this far underwater. There was a great big fish in it. My grandpa had caught a bass one time and put him in the spring house in that tile, and he was so big he could just turn around like this inside of it. And his nose was on one side and his tail was on the other side, and he would eat the crayfish. There were a lot of crayfish in the spring house and salamanders, and I guess that's what he ate. But he was in there for years in that big tile just all day long, slowly turning round and round, waiting for something to come through the water. And after you looked at him, then you would go start catching crayfish. The water came out in kind of like a trough about, I remember it being about this wide and about this deep. There used to be crocs sitting in the trough, and then the water would make the crocs cool, and you could keep things in the crocs to keep them cool. <laughs> But in that water that ran around the outside of the spring house on three sides is where you would find the crayfish. 
and you would collect them. Another thing that I remember about my grandmother's house, um, I was there in the summertime, you will remember, and there was something I was allowed to do when I was there. I would go back up to the house, and presently, Grandma would ask me if I wanted to go pick strawberries. And she had a strawberry patch that was outside of the kitchen window. On the back side of the house, the ground kind of went up away from the farmhouse, and I kind of remember there was a space between the house and the strawberry patch. It was not very big. I don't imagine it was bigger than about from the bench to the wall. And then the ground kind of went up like this, about this high. And then it kind of leveled off and went back into the backyard, and then it kind of went back up toward the woods. And along that bank is where she had her strawberries planted. She was very particular about her strawberry patch. Um, it was not one of these strawberry patches where the strawberries were just kind of everywhere. I can distinctly remember that the strawberries were in bunches. And there were, I think, three rows of them. So along the bottom, there was a big, nice strawberry plant. And then a couple feet over, another big, nice strawberry plant. And another one, and another one, and another one. And then behind that, up the hill, a foot or so, there was another row. And then up behind that, there was another row. My grandparents, um, they never told me stories about when they were little. I don't know what we talked about, but I don't remember them telling me stories. But I do know that they were very poor most of their lives. They got married, and it was not very long after they were married, they bought this farm, and then something came called the Great Depression. And you learn about that in school when you get a little bit older. The Great Depression was a time when there was not a lot of money. Um, people had very hard times, didn't have jobs, couldn't hardly make it. And they were very concerned whether they were going to make it or not. Would they be able to pay for their farm? Or would they lose their farm? like many of their neighbors were losing their farm. The bank would come and take it away from them. So they were very worried about that, and their worries got stronger when Grandpa came home from town one day to tell Grandma that the Butler National Bank had closed down, and that was where they had their money. All the little bit of money that they had saved up was in the bank, and the bank closed down, and it never opened back up and they never got their money back that was in the bank. And you can imagine that would be very sad for you. If you were already sort of poor, and you had your money in the bank, and the bank closed down, and you could never get in to get your money, the money was all gone. So what were they going to do? They had a farm, and they had a farm payment, and there was very little money. They decided, or I guess Grandpa decided, that he could not stay on the farm. He had to go find a job. And there were not very many jobs, but he did manage to find a job um, working on roads. And he worked on roads for $2 a day. That is what he got paid to work on the road. And it was a very hard job. He had to work very long hours, and it was very hard work. Um, I do remember, um, not my great-grandmother, but my grandmother saying that he would come home from work at night and his hands would just be bleeding. 
because they had to smash rocks by hand to make gravel, and it was very hard work, and then you know, carry rocks by hand and put them in place to build roads. But he had to go to work every day, and they would just kind of doctor his hands up in the evening best they could, and the next day he would have to go to work again because they needed that $2. They did still farm at that time. He would do chores in the morning, and then he would go to work, and during the day, my great-grandmother would do the field work. Um, she had two little children, and I don't know how you do that, how you run a tractor and do field work with two little children, but you either, I guess, take them with you or you don't watch them very much. And I don't know which the case was. Knowing my grandpa, she might not have watched him very much. But with two little children, she did the farm work. And then in the evening, when grandpa came home, he had to do the chores in the evening and finish up whatever farm work there was. They had to work very, very hard. But they did manage to keep their farm. They did not lose their farm. They were able to pay for their farm. And then later their life did get easier. They got their farm paid for. And then the Great Depression was over. And then a number of years later, I don't know the year that it was, but it was probably in the 1950s. Um, oh, what? one more thing I forgot to mention. Um, she did the farm work. And he worked on the roads and tried to do farm work. And they also sold coal. Out behind the farmhouse on the hill, there was a little coal mine. It was not a big coal mine like you might visit today. It was just a little hole in the mountain where a coal seam had stuck out and they had started digging the coal away. And um, my grandmother remembers it because she helped with it after she married my grandpa for a little while that they would sell coal to the neighbors. You know what coal is, don't you? Those black rocks that burn? Well, there was coal on their farm. And the coal shaft, um, the coal mine, it was tall enough that you could get in, but you could not stand up. So you had to kind of probably stoop over about like this, and then it was only about yay wide. And it went back into the hill, or we would say little mountain behind their house. I do not know how far it went back in, but for many years, they went in there and they dug coal. So it went back quite a ways, and I know it went back quite a ways because they had a little railroad to push coal out. And this is a rail from that little railroad. I found this by accident um, just about two years ago. My grandmother said I could have it. Um, you can see it's just a little gauge railroad. I only found one little rail in weeds. But um, she said that you crawled in this hole and there was this little railroad that went back into the mountain in the hole. And they had a cart that sat on the rails. And you put your pick in the cart and then you couldn't stand up so you had to get down on your hands and knees and you just pushed it ahead of you back into the mountain until you got to the end of the tunnel and then you kind of had to squeeze around it and you got your pick and you just started picking coal and you picked up the lumps and you put them in the cart and when your cart was full you just turned around and you pushed it back out to the end and when you got to the end they had a little, I think you call it a tipple, 
I don't know, even know what a tickle is. It's some sort of a little hoist or something that would dump the coal out. And the neighbors would come and buy coal. And by working on the road and doing their farm work and selling coal, they were able to keep their farm during the Great Depression. The coal came in handy later, um, in a sense, you might say, about the 1950s or so, a coal company came and wanted to strip mine half of their farm where the coal was. And they did that. Um, I never saw the coal mine because by the time I was a little boy, it was long gone. Half of the mountain was gone because they took the dirt off and then big machines came and dug out all the coal and then they pushed the dirt back and it's what's called a strip mine. And you probably, um, some of you children, you've never seen a strip mine, but if you're from the north, some of you might know what a strip mine is. We had a strip mine on the farm where the coal used to be. They made a, um, I do not know how much money they made off of the coal when they sold it to the coal company, but they made a decent amount of money. There's one thing that um, I never knew when I was a little boy. I enjoyed going to their house. I never realized they were poor. I didn't think about it that they were poor. They didn't seem poor to me. I mean, she always had candy, and that's good. And you could always catch crayfish, and that's fun. And I could always eat strawberries, so long as there were strawberries out there. But there was something I did not know about the strawberry patch. And I did not know this until my great-grandmother was dead and passed away. And my grandparents told me something about the strawberry patch. There was a reason why her strawberry patch was right outside the kitchen window on that bank. It was because she wanted to watch her strawberry patch. Why do you think she wanted to watch her strawberry patch? It's because there was a secret about the strawberry patch. They had gotten money from the coal company. And the time when they had money in the bank, the bank closed. They did not like banks very much. So they weren't going to put their money in the bank. And I guess they thought and thought about it and thought, what are we going to do with our money? And they decided to put their money in jars. And underneath the strawberry plants were jars of money. And they could go out and look out their kitchen window every day. And so long as the strawberry plants were still there, they could figure that nobody found their money. Their money was buried in the strawberry plants, and I never knew that. If I was a little boy and I knew that, do you think I probably would have tried to dig up their money? Or at least check and see if it was there for them? I probably would have done that. Okay, well now we get down to the lessons. What kind of lessons might you draw from a little story like this? First lesson, I kind of relate to this rail, and that's why I brought it as an object lesson. How much work do you think it was to push a cart back into the mountain and dig coal by hand and then push loaded carts out on your hands and knees? You think that was a lot of work? I think this little rail that I found in the weeds at the strip mine represents work. And it represents hard work. 
there's hard work and there's easy work in life. You know, sometimes um, there are jobs to do around the house, and you know which jobs you want to do. Because some of the jobs are easy jobs, and some of the jobs are hard jobs. They had to work very hard. Maybe thinking a little more to you parents here who have children. Are you teaching your children to work hard? Would your children actually know how to work hard? I think most parents would say that they are teaching their children to work. Are you teaching your child to work? Oh, yes, we teach our children to work, definitely. Now, you could, who are the teachers here? Are some teachers here? There's a teacher, there's a teacher. I think if I would take the teachers aside where you couldn't hear what they said and... Uh, if I ask them which children know how to work and which ones don't, I think they would be able to tell me which children know how to work and which don't. They would probably be able to make a list in their mind. And I think actually maybe we could divide it into three, three categories. There are three ways that, that um, children are taught and end up. There are children who know how to work and who know how to work hard. And then there are children who know how to work if they have to work. And then there are children who do not know how to work. And I think it's different in our church settings and in the world in general uh, I think it's better in our church settings. More of the children know how to work, and more of them that know how to work know how to work hard. But there has been a marked deterioration in that, and it is noticed by employers that younger generations of Mennonites do not like to work hard. They still know how to work, but they are unwilling to work hard. And maybe that is okay if life is always easy. If the economy is always good and there's always lots of jobs and all the jobs pay pretty good and you always get to live here and you never have to leave here and go to Mexico or Brazil or some other place to live. Maybe it's just fine that your children don't know how to work hard. But just maybe, if things are not always the way they are now, some of your children will be better off in the future if they were taught how to work hard. Hopefully there's no one here who is not teaching their children to work. But teachers and employers would both note that not all children or young people in our church settings are hard workers. It is no longer true. Maybe it was never true. But it is not true now. Even within a youth group or within a Mennonite community, an employer knows or soon knows which young people know how to work hard and which ones don't. 
There are young people that when things are a little tighter, they can't seem to find work because all the employers are smart enough to know they do not work hard. And there are young people who, when things get a little tighter, like they did over the last eight years, that even when other people don't have plenty of work, they tend to always have people wanting them to work for them. Well, you can get which ones are the ones that know how to work hard and which are the ones that don't. So that's a little question there for you as a parent, as a young parent. I am assuming that you are teaching your children to work. But you think about it and try to answer it honestly. Do your children actually know how to work hard? Have you given them what it takes to tackle a hard job and to do it just because I have to do it, it needs to be done, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to go ahead and do it right while I'm doing it. I'm going to do it all the way to the end. I'll show initiative. If there's a slack moment, I will go find something else to do. I won't wait for the boss to tell me or mom to tell me. Um, some of us have taught our children to work, and they will do it when they have to. And then some of us have taught our children to work hard, and they will not have trouble in life. They will be able to make their way in life. A second um, thing to think about in this little story uh, represents this right here, and it's the idea of savings. Saving. The first idea was work, first concept. The second concept is the idea of saving. Now, my grandparents certainly knew how to save. They saved everything they could and were very thrifty when they were poor. And then when they were not poor anymore, when there was coal money from strip mining the farm, they did not go on vacations and buy nice things for themselves. They pretty much lived in the same house with the same things they always had. And they saved their money. Um, is saving a good thing or a bad thing? This is what they did. They canned their money. Work all you can, save all you can, can it, and then sit on the lid. That's basically what they did. They did not spend money their whole life. They saved money, and when they died, someone else spent their money. It didn't stay in the strawberry patch very long after the funeral. Um, you can bet that. Is saving a good thing or a bad thing? The scripture says a lot about saving. Um, you're well acquainted with that. Saving is commended. Now, there is something that is condemned in scripture, and that is hoarding. And there's a line there. I'm not here to delineate where that is for you. Um, but there is a line between saving for things you need, looking ahead, being foresightful, learning to be thrifty in your life, that you can go to town with $10 and come back with 5 instead of coming back with none. You manage to hang on to some of your money. Do you save money, children? Your parents teaching you to save money? To be thrifty? That when you earn a little bit of money, it doesn't all get spent at the dollar store or on candy or even on good things like books? Do you know how to save money? Are you teaching your children 
to save. You know, and one thing that I think is worth saying here, how would children ever learn to save money if children do not have money? There are people who do not allow their children to have money. If the children make any money, mom and dad just swoop in and confiscate it all. Okay? That's a rather foolish thing to do. Because we understand that we learn best how. How do we best learn things? Book learning? Read it in a book somewhere? Or doing it yourself? Experience. Okay? Yet there are parents, and there's more of them in our church circles than anywhere else, who will not let their children have experience with money. In our work with AF, we run across this all the time. Um, particularly like in the Amish church. Young people get married at 21, 22. They never handled money before in their life. Never were given any money. No, if they went with the youth, you know, here's your $5. But everything they made up until they turned of age at 20 was confiscated and gone, and they had no experience working with money. Do your children have experience working with money? Some stage of that life that of life, that might mean you have to give them money so that they have some to experiment with. It might mean you have to let them do things with money and make bad decisions. Do you learn, what kind of decisions do you learn the most from? The bad decisions, the ones that had consequences. And I remember um, when our boys were little, uh, we had a little system where um, the money they had had to be divided certain ways and so much had to go into savings and so much to giving and so much to could go in their spending. And then when they were very little, they could spend their money if mom said so. You know, so if they're in town and, mom, I want to buy this. Can I use some of my money? And they're at the dollar store. And do you know what happens with toys you buy at the dollar store? There's only one thing that happens to toys you buy at the dollar store. They break. Sometimes in one day, and sometimes they make it two days, but they just break. <laughs> and probably one of the best um, lessons little children can learn is to use their own hard-earned money to buy something that breaks, and you knew it was going to break when they bought it. <coughs> And instead of stopping them and saying, no, of course you can't buy that. It'd be stupid to buy that. Let them buy it. Let it break. Let it happen the second time and the third time. And then about the fourth time they want to buy it, you can say, um, what happened to the last three you bought? Oh, they all broke, didn't they? <laughs> and maybe you can teach some lessons. Second lesson is about saving. The first lesson is about work. The third lesson is about giving. I do not remember my grandparents being generous with their money. I never really knew they had money. Um, I have different little stories I've gathered about them, but none of those stories involve them giving away any money. I don't know that they ever gave away any money. Maybe they did, and I just never heard about it, but that's one thing they weren't. They weren't giving people that I know of. So you're raising children, 
Do your children know how to give? Have you ever taught your children to give? How are you teaching them to give? Do your children even know what tithing is? We've made lots of mistakes in our married life, but I think one of the good things we did is that from the time the boys knew that 10 dimes made a dollar, they knew that when they got a dollar, one of those dimes went to church because that's your tithing. You just, it's just automatic. You just automatically take 10% out. You don't even think about not giving 10%. Do your children know what that word means? Do your children even know that you have an alms fund at church? And what the alms fund is and why we put money in it at communion time? And where it goes? Do they have an idea that even though they're younger, um, you know, till they're earning any significant amount of money, you know, their youth age, but your children, when they're youth age, would they automatically know that I'm, I'm putting something in the alms fund collection? Of course I am. Because that's what you do. Would your children know that? Would your children know how to quietly give money to someone else who needs help in church? Would they have any clue how to accomplish something like that? Would it even cross their mind that that is something you do? When someone in church has a financial need, you find a way to slip some money over there. Would your children be aware of that? And you think about your child right now. Does your child right now have the reputation of being a generous person? They might have a reputation. Many children do. But would generosity be part of the reputation that your children have? And if not, um, how are you going to help them so that generosity might be part of the reputation they have. The fourth thing, there's the idea about work. Yes, these people had to work very hard, and we should learn to work hard. The idea of saving, these people certainly saved, and there are things that are worth saving for. We should teach our children to save. The third, about giving, something maybe they didn't do so much of, but um, giving is talked about in scripture and we want to be giving people. The fourth idea is one that I, I think a lot of people miss in, in raising their children and that's the idea of investment. When my grandparents did have some money finally in their life, probably in their 50s, when they finally had some money, what did they do with their money? They had only one thing they could think of to do with their money. Bury it in the strawberry patch. How much good do you think that money did all those years it was in the strawberry patch? Do you think that money did any good sitting in the strawberry patch all those years? I doubt it did a whole lot of good. The idea of investment is using money like a tool. 
Your children know what other tools are. They know what a vacuum cleaner is, and they know what a mixer is, and they know what a hammer is, and they know what a lawnmower is, and those are tools that we have around our house, and we use our tools to get things done. Have you taught your children that money is a tool and you use money to get things done? Do your children understand something like the idea of risk? That when you make an investment, there is some risk. That means things might go wrong. David Souter is one of our business advisors at Anabaptist Financial. He says that one of the largest trends he sees in young people in plain church circles is that they no longer have a concept of risk because it always works out. There's always money. We've never been poor, and we never will be. It always works. Um, need to borrow money? Borrow it. Because if you're going to farm, it'll work out. Or if you're going to go in business, everybody makes money. We're all successful. They have no concept of risk that it does not always work out. And that's a generalization, of course. There are people who do understand risk. But do you understand that in the generation that your children are growing up in, the fear of risk is diminishing? Are you teaching your children about risk? You know what? You worked pretty hard for this money. Um, that was good of you to work. It was good of you to save. You don't want to lose it, do you? Let's, um, you want to buy this thing or you want to put your money over here? Um, let's talk about everything that could go wrong. Let's think through this. We're not going to be scaredy cats, but money's a tool and it's supposed to be doing something. We're supposed to be putting it to work. But we have to understand the idea of risk. Would your children, um, now the little children, this is not a question concerning your little children, but you've got children that are 12, 13, 14 years of age, do they understand the idea of return? That you're supposed to make something when you invest money, whether it's in a farm or in a cow or um, in a lawnmower to mow grass with? And do they understand reasonable returns? You don't make a million dollars tomorrow. You make a little bit. You make a margin. Do they understand something like um, overhead expenses? You ever done a little project with your children, even when they're little, and keep track of the expenses? There's lots of things you can do along this way. Uh, and again, I don't want to say we've done lots of things wrong. I do want to say we've done lots of things in our wrong wrong in the way of raising our children, but when we raised our children, we tried to teach them about money. They had to save money, whether they wanted to or not. And it had to go into maybe a, save, a jar in the beginning and then a piggy bank, maybe a save, passbook savings account later. And then when it built up, it's not smart to leave money in a passbook savings account. We should be doing something here. Maybe we should buy a bottle calf. And, you know, there's risk there calves die. Um, the first time we bought calves with the boys, they were very little. 
Um, we bought them off a neighbor. We bought two calves. And I put in half the money, and the three boys together had enough money to pay the other half. And I came home from work one day, and one of the calves was dead. Their comment was they were so sad that dad's calf died. <laughs> okay? Okay? We hadn't talked about some things well enough. <laughs> okay? But the idea of risk, the idea of return, the idea that um, did we actually make any money once you add up the feed and a little bit of money for the fencing and anything else we had to pay, um, did we actually make any money? Um, are your children, are they learning things like that? Do your children know how connect, to connect their values with money? That there are things they would never buy. And there are things they would never put their money in. Because that would go against what I believe is right and good. And a Christian wouldn't buy these sorts of things. And a Christian would never invest his money in this or in that because it would violate my values, my faith. Do your children know the value of things? Meaning, do they know that if something costs money, you just are careful with it? Um, we can't afford, money doesn't grow on trees. We can't be replacing things all the time because we're careless and we break things. Do your children understand the idea of maintenance? that you have to do some maintenance work sometimes to preserve value. Have you helped your children to learn? Have you helped them to learn about work and to work hard? Have you managed yet to teach your children to save? Are you being successful in teaching your children about giving? And are you taking the time and the effort, takes a lot of effort, little projects, to teach your children how to invest and to make their tool that God put in their pocket achieve something that's good and has merit? And then one closing thought. There are two things that your children will have in their lifetime. They will have time and they will have money. They will have a certain amount of time in their life, hours and days and days and weeks, weeks and years, and a certain number of years. Some will have more and some will have less, but they will have time in their life. And they will have money. Which of those two is more valuable? Time or money? Time is always more valuable than money because you can get more money, but you can never get more time. When you spend time, it's gone. You don't get more. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a quantity in life that's diminishing. Are you teaching your children to redeem their time? in their work? Are you teaching your children to save time? Don't do it that way, and not just because it's stupid, don't do it that way because it takes longer. 
And we can do it just as good this way over here. Are you teaching your children to save? Are you teaching your children to give? It's easy to give your money. I dare say there are many of you here who are married who would rather give $20 than an hour of your time. Many days of the week. Because your time is more valuable. Are you teaching your children that sometimes you need to give your time? You need to go into voluntary service. You need to go help someone and refuse to be paid for it. You need to give your time. And then the idea of investing. Um, do your children understand the idea of investing their time? What you're doing with your time, is it actually worthwhile? You're losing your time. You're not getting this time back. Did you redeem your time? I think there's lots of little practical things, and I'd give you an encouragement as young parents. Um, use money just as a tool. That's all money is, just a tool. So go ahead and use money as your tool to teach your children about some things that are more important than money.